It's William Shatner for crying out loud. The king of dramatic overacting. Puppies kissing babies. Come on, son. Well, uh, maybe you are aware, uh, William Shatner was actually in the news this past week. And uh, go ahead, Gary. I was pretty surprised when I saw this on the face of, on the cover of CNN. He's overwhelmed. What can I say? Well, we started a new series in the Gospel of John last week, <laughs> and I spent so much time trying to explain the William Shatner joke to you that I forgot to give you a roadmap of our series, which is probably, you know, fortunate considering I don't have a roadmap for our series. I was drawn to the Gospel, I was compelled to work through it, and Unlike our days on this earth, the number of lessons in this series has not yet been determined. So each week I just want to come into the text and pray and read and study and, and journey with you and, and we'll get there when we get there. I know that I want to focus on people in the Gospel of John. I want to focus on their experience and their encounters with Jesus, and so we'll let that be our guide. Each week we're going to do what John is asking us to consider as his readers, to contemplate on two questions. Who is Jesus, and what has Jesus come into this world to accomplish? Now, today we're going to find the answer to both of these questions in one of the most intriguing characters of the Bible. I mean, he put the retro in retro. He put the old school in old school. He is the original OG. We're talking about none other than somebody we could do an entire series on, John the Baptist. Now, John the Apostle devotes a substantial amount of parchment telling us about John the Baptist. And what John the Apostle is doing is he is introducing John the Baptist to us as an attorney would present someone for deposition. I mean, if you look at verse 19 in your Bibles, John begins to explain who John is by saying, this is the testimony of John. And what John the Apostle is doing is he's, he's giving all of the narrative focus over to John the Baptist so that in John the Baptist's own experience, from his own calling, from his own mission, he can tell us more about Jesus. John the Baptist appears, the Bible says, as a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, and his voice is, prepare the way of the Lord. 
The Bible also tells us that multitudes of people, they, they flock to Him. They come to Him from, from Judea, from, from Jerusalem, from the surrounding countrysides. They, they flock to Him out in the middle of this region to be baptized by Him. The Bible says they come to Him confessing their sins, and He was baptizing them. It's such an amazing sight if we could be there, if we could be standing on the bank of the River Jordan and we could be watching after person, after person, after person comes and enters those waters and rises up anew. Well, this revival phenomena, it attracted the attention of the head office in Jerusalem. And so, John the Apostle tells us how a delegation of religious leaders were dispatched, this elite team of field agents from the home office in Jerusalem are tasked to go out into the countryside and figure out what is going on. I'm intrigued by this dispatch. I'm intrigued because they're sent from the head office in Jerusalem, this elite team of Levites and priests. They're sent out into this region. I'm very intrigued by this, especially when you consider that at the birth of John the Baptist, his dad, Zechariah, was a priest in Jerusalem. And so these, uh, these men, they come, they're primed and ready for this showdown in the desert as they get ready to question the son of a priest, Amon. Starting in verse 20, you see some really interesting dialogue. Now here to play the part of the narrator is Kaylee, and here to play the part of the elite team of priests and Levites is Alex, and here to pray, play the part of John the Baptist is Johnny Cash. This is the testimony of John when the Jews and the priest and sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? I'm no one. Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. But then are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? Nope. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now this group of elite Levites and priests has been sent by the Pharisees. Then what are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So I want to show you two quick things from this chapter, from this dialogue, before we dive in and see how John answers these two questions about Jesus. The first is if you're noticing in the dialogue and this conversation between the Levites and the priest and John the Baptist that there is an emphasis in the text on the word sent. That word keeps coming up over and over. Even John the Apostle makes this observation that, that John the Baptist is sent by God. And so the priests and the Levites, they come to him and they say, we've been sent here. We've been sent to ask you questions. And we have to take an answer back to the ones who sent us. 
And so over and over again, you see John writing this word in this text. They're sent. John the Baptist is sent. And these people are sent. Now, what I want to do now is I want to focus on the probing question in verse 25, which if you're looking at your Bibles, verse 25 once again says, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? This is a fair question. I mean, it's a really good question that they want to know of him. It's a good question. It's a fair question. If, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing? So now what I want you to do now is let's look at John's answer starting in verse 26. And as we read it, I want you to already be thinking in your mind how John does and does not answer the question. Verse 26 says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Did you notice? He doesn't really answer the question. They say, why are you baptizing? And he says, yes, I'm baptizing. He doesn't answer the question. I mean, he replies to the question, but he doesn't really answer the question. And when he does reply, it's some weird, mysterious answer. He's already been quoting to them from Isaiah 40, a passage that they would be very familiar with. But yet, in this moment, when he's pressed to give a reason why he's baptizing, he he gets all cryptic. And if you look at the really interesting thing that he says about Jesus is is rather than answer the question, he starts comparing himself to Jesus. John the Baptist is saying, listen, compared to Jesus, I'm nobody. You want to know who I am? I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm no one. I'm the chief of the nobodies. I'm the least of the least. I'm so far beneath him, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a second. If you look through John chapter 1, these first few verses, you will notice that John the Apostle says this, and John the Baptist says this to his disciples. He could have answered this question, then why are you baptizing? What are you doing? He could have answered the question with three words. He could have simply just said, God sent me. But you notice he doesn't. Uh, well, maybe for one, it would have, it would have caused a firestorm. And, and so, but this is the focus of the gospel of John, both in the words of John the apostle and the words of John the Baptist, that he was sent. He is a man on a mission. He tells his disciples, but he does not tell the delegates John wants you to know, John wants his disciples to know that I'm doing what I am doing because God has sent me. He said, yes, I am sent by God, but compared to the one who has been sent by God, I'm nobody. See, even before the famous words of John the Baptist in chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease, John is already trying to get our attention off of him and on to Jesus. His focus is focusing on Jesus. 
And so what John says to this delegation of delegates who have been delegated to come and talk to him is this, I'm doing this because someone is coming after me. I'm doing this for someone who is greater than I am. John the Baptist says, yes, I am baptizing or washing people. But let me tell you about the one who's coming. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. Okay, the whole touching of the sandal thing, untying the sandal, it's a bit lost on us today because it has so much to do with the culture and practice of that day. In a hot, dry climate like that, when everyone walks around wearing sandals if they have them, you, you do that all day long and you have stinky robes and smelly feet. And so John is, is saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and wash his feet. Now, why is he saying this? You see, the lowest servant in the household had the job of washing the feet of people in the household if they were a Gentile. The job was so degrading, it was the dirtiest of the dirty jobs that if you had a Jewish servant in your household, they didn't have to wash feet. That's how degrading this was. Even a disciple uh, of a teacher, of a rabbi, was never expected to wash the feet of his rabbi. So, it's something then when you consider that moment at the Last Supper when Jesus gets up and begins washing the feet of his disciples. Standing there, watching and hearing all of this, watching these elite priests and Levites talking to John the Baptist, and watching John the Baptist talking to them are the disciples of John. And the one who prepares the way for Jesus is the first one to introduce us to Jesus and answer our two questions. Look again, please, in verse 29, where we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, this is to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel." All right, do you notice what John is telling his followers about Jesus? He says something really unusual here. He says, after me comes a man who ranks before me, and he says, because he was before me. Now, if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know that he and Jesus are related by marriage, so I think that's second cousins. I can never figure what the tree is. Even in my own family, I can never figure out what the tree is. But they're related, And John was born first. John is older. And yet John is telling his disciples, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. You know what he's saying? He's essentially telling us what John has already said in verses 1 and 2, that Jesus was before John because he was the Word in the beginning. That before this world was made, Jesus was there. 
And so in introducing Jesus to his disciples, John gives us this answer to our two questions. Let's look at the first one. Who is Jesus? John says he is the Lamb of God. Now, this is the first of eight titles or descriptions that are found throughout the rest of just chapter 1 in the Gospel of John of who Jesus is. And when John uses this phrase, the Lamb of God, he's speaking of the sacrificial character of Christ's mission. Now, for those of you who enjoy this kind of stuff like I do, uh, the word lamb, it only appears four times in the New Testament, this form of the word. Only appears four times, and two of them are in the Gospel of John in this chapter by John the Baptist. And those other two verses, those other two mentions, every single one of these, they're pointing us back to Isaiah the prophet. And so when John is using the phrase, Lamb of God, there's at least three ways that this connects to the Old Testament. The first is in Genesis 22 when Abraham continually answers the question of Isaac as they're on the way to the mountain. Where is the lamb for sacrifice, Father? Where is the lamb for sacrifice? Where is the lamb for sacrifice? Isaac asks over and over and over again, and each time Abraham answers, God will provide. God will provide the lamb. And the second instance or reference of this verse of what it points back to is in Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover lamb, the final plague that was to come upon the Egyptians and everyone, all the Israelites were included in this. That if you don't take a lamb and if you don't sacrifice him and if you don't put his blood on the doors of your house, you will not be spared by the angel who is coming tonight. And so those who were spared this Passover lamb, those who were spared were spared because they had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. And so each one of these connection points back to the Old Testament, they're all rooted in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, which says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 is pointing us to the cross. It's pointing us to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And when John is answering the question, who is Jesus, he simply says, huh, he's the lamb of God. He is the one God has provided for us. Now let's look at the second question. What has Jesus come into this world to accomplish? It's in the very next phrase that John gives us. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now Myron and I were talking about this passage this past week, and I, I said to him, I'm thinking through this idea of Jesus taking away the sins of the world. And Myron said, it doesn't say sins of the world, it says sin of the world. And I said, Myron, nobody likes a know-it-all. And here I go, once again, two weeks in a row, having to tell you that Myron is right. That he's right. 
So I went back and I looked at that and I was like, huh, well, what is the sin of the world? I actually think there's a short answer and there's a long answer. Don't worry, I'm going to give you the short answer today. We'll save the long answer for another time. The sin of the world is the sin of all the people of the world without any distinction. Without any distinction. That's the short answer. Uh, It's the same thing the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3 when he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So both John and Paul are telling us the same thing. Now, if we could just get Ringo and George on board, then we would be having the same message here. We get stuck in the level of distinction. We get stuck there, especially if it's not a sin that we struggle with. And we're the ones who rank sins and try to delineate and distinguish between this sin and the other. We talk about situational ethics. We talk about relative truth. We talk about white lies. The Bible makes no distinction. Now, if we had more time, we could talk about the long answer, which is the sin beneath all sins. The cliff note version of this is idolatry, or as D.A. Carson says, to de-God God, that that's the sin beneath all sins. So, in this first introductory moment, John the Baptist embraces his role as one who is sent from God. He sees as his mission to point people, to point his disciples, to point us to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. What John is doing is he's pulling us back to the words of Isaiah, and yet at the same time, he's pushing us forward to the cross, something that he will not see. And so he's pulling us back to Isaiah, but he's pushing us forward to the cross. So as we move through the gospel of John, we should not stray too far from these words of John the Baptist. The gospel of John is moving us toward the cross. It's moving us toward how Christ paid the penalty of sin. He paid the penalty of our sin willingly. God's provision for the sin of the world is Jesus, His own Son, the Lamb of God. And our only response is to come to Jesus through faith. That's our only response, to receive Him as those who believe in Him. See, Jesus, He pays the debt of our sin, and He opens for us a way to return into relationship with the Father. So, it's one thing to see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the starting point of the gospel. But it's another thing to see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. It has to invade your heart. It has to overwhelm your soul. 
It has to consume your mind, not how worthless you are, but how worthy you are because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has willingly given Himself for your sin, for you. It's why He came in the first place. I mean, even when the angel is talking to Mary, he says, you shall name Him Jesus because the name Jesus means He will save people from their sins. Listen, there's only one way that this can be true. There's only one way that this can be true for you. If you receive Him, if you believe in Him. The gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. No distinction. It doesn't matter who you are. And boy, this is the thing where most of us get lost. The gospel is the power of God to save irreligious people, yes, but the gospel is the power of God to save religious people. I really feel in my heart that our mission field today is not people who who do not yet know Christ, although that is our mission field. It's people who are in church week after week, day after day, year after year, a lifetime of being in church and have never moved from being religious people to being people whose faith and hope and trust is in Jesus Christ alone, in His merit, in His work, in His righteousness. I mean, look at verse 10 right quick in John chapter 1, verse 10. He says, this is talking about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. You know who it's talking about? It's talking about irreligious people known in that day and age as Gentiles. The people who were of the world. He, he came into the world that He made, and they do not know Him. And see, this is not just repetition. In verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. The gospel is telling us that this news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to accomplish is for irreligious people. It's for religious people just as much as it is for irreligious people. That when our hope and our trust is in some system, it's in some form of doctrine, it's some church with some name that our hope and our trust is in the wrong thing. The gospel says there's no difference, that all have sinned and all have fallen short, but the good news of the gospel is there's no distinction, that all who believe in Jesus, that anyone who believes in Jesus becomes a child of God, that anyone, that all who receive Jesus, they become a child of God. Look at verse 12, since you're already there, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Do you want to know if you're a child of God? Do you want to know if you're really a Christian? It's not because of the work that you do for God. It's not. It's not because of the good things that you do for others. 
It's not because of the good that you've done. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You're not even disqualified because of the bad things that you've done. You want to know if you're really a Christian? You want to know if you're really a child of God? It's because you've come to the place in your life where you say, God, accept me as you would accept your son, Jesus Christ. If that is the prevailing thing that drives you, that you rest in this, that you trust in this, that you make decisions from this, God, accept me as you would accept your Son, Jesus Christ. God, accept the work and righteousness of Jesus as if it were my work and my righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ simply stated means you rest in You trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your own. The Lamb of God who takes away your sin. One last thing. You see that word that John uses when he sees Jesus walking by and he turns to his disciples and he says to them, Behold, the Lamb of God. That word's a great word. It doesn't just mean look at or or pay attention to. It means to gaze on. It means to think about. It means to grasp. John is seeing Jesus and he says to his disciples, look there. Look at him. Do you see him? He's the one. Do you see him? Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm telling you? I'm nothing. He's everything. I'm the lowest of the lowest. He's the highest of the highest. John is telling them, behold him. Listen, these words speak no lesser testimony for us today that we need to behold Jesus. We need to see him. We need to gaze upon his beauty We need to grasp this in the depth of our hearts that He is the one who takes away our sin. You need to see Jesus for who He is and for what He's done for you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world, they'll grow strangely him in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you send your spirit in our hearts, in our lives to do just that, to drive anything that we have placed in our heart as being more important than you, what we're trusting in, that thing which so frustrates us because we can't have it, that thing that we long for because we can't get it, would you just, would you burn it out of our heart? We can't do it. So we need the power of your Spirit. As those who believe in Jesus, as those who receive Him, as those whose heart desperately longs to live as your children. May we see that the way in which we trust you, the deeper we go to you in our faith, 
is our testimony. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray through this Lamb, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand one more time? Our elders are going to be in the front and the aisles. And as we sing this song together, if you would like to respond and receive Jesus this morning, if you would like prayer on your behalf, come while we share in this song together.